So we're going to jump right in tonight. We're looking at Revelation predicts the time of the end. And not only does it predict the time of the end, we're going to be looking at the longest time prophecy in the Bible. And really the whole thing is about Jesus and what Jesus is doing for you and for me. And yes, it predicts the time of the end. So before we jump in, let's bow our heads for prayer and ask the Lord to be with us. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your many blessings to each one of us here. We thank you for all the things that we take for granted in uh, this place that we live. Lord, we see all kinds of ways that America is deteriorating, but still it is an incredible place uh, to be. And we thank you for that. And we pray that we will continue to learn about the Bible and Bible prophecy uh, and that we can be prepared for this time of the end. And so we would just ask that your Holy Spirit will guide and direct uh, in tonight's teaching. May it be clear. May we be able to understand. And may you have your way tonight. In your name we pray. Amen. I just had to throw this in, by the way. This is a sign. Somebody emailed to me. Psychic fair canceled due to unforeseen circumstances. Don't you like that? You know, we're talking about prophecy. And sometimes people get it right part of the time, but does God get it right part of the time? All the time. time. Tonight we're talking about prophecy, and for God to predict something, he doesn't guess, he knows. Okay, this isn't a matter of probability. Jesus knows the future. And tonight we're going to look at a prophecy that foretells exactly when Jesus was going to begin his ministry, which was at his baptism. It's going to tell us exactly when he was going to die. It's going to tell us when this covenant of his people with the Jews ran out and the gospel would go to the Gentiles with the stoning of Stephen. A little bit of a violent picture there. And then it's going to tell us about the time of the end and the judgment. And so let's continue on here as we talk. And the last portion is going to be, when did the judgment begin? And that's one of the questions we're asking tonight. So oftentimes we look at Daniel and Revelation, they fit hand in glove together, and we understand them both much better when we study them together. And anybody who's read through even just a a light reading of Revelation, a light reading of Daniel, sees there's a lot of similarities, a lot of similar symbolism that you see in both of those books. Revelation describes details about the judgment. Daniel predicts when and where the judgment will, you know, when it will take place and where it will take place. And so I don't know about you, but I want to get those questions answered as well. I'm interested in the judgment, but I also want to know when and where. Revelation 14, 7, we looked at this. This is part of the three angels' messages, the first of the three angels' messages. It says, fear God and give glory to him. That means honor and respect God and give glory to him for the hour of his, what's the word? Judgment Judgment will come. come. For the hour of his judgment has come. So here's a scene maybe of the judgment. Now this type of a picture can keep you up at night, can it? Oh, boy. Were you or were you not? Did you or did you not? And beads of sweat start piling up. Well, we'll talk a little bit more about that. But what is the significance of the judgment? Now, the good news, let me just put you at ease right now. The good news, here you have in this picture, you have the law. If I didn't have the law, I wouldn't know what sin was, that type of thing. We see that in Scripture. We have an angel here maybe going over some records of, of David Wright's life. Oh, my. And then you have, who's this right here? Christ at our side. 
Now, the good news is, if we've accepted Jesus as our Lord and Savior, his life and his record appears right here, not mine. Can I hear anybody say amen? Amen. Because, and the devil's not pictured here, but he's the accuser of the brethren. Sometimes people in, in our society and in our churches and in our communities, they think that they need to do the devil's job and be the accuser of the brethren. But the Bible says that's the devil's job, right? And so he wants to stand there and he wants to accuse and say, no, 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 let me tell you about this person. But you know what? He's not looking at my life. As soon as I accept Christ, he covers me. And now he's looking at Christ's life. That's good news, right? So you don't have to be awake at night about this picture and the judgment. Um, And the judgment is going to come before, at least there's this pre-advent judgment. That sounds big. What is that? Pre-advent. Well, advent simply means coming again or second coming because Jesus already came the first time. So the next advent will be the second advent. And pre, is that before or after? Before. Before. Okay. Now, look at this verse here, and that'll help explain. I'll I'll talk some more. My reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work, according to the decisions that they've made, the choices that they've made, right? And so if he has to know what what he's going to do when he comes, he has to, to judge before he comes, now, again, I think some of this, to a large degree, is, um, you know, I don't know that it takes God hours and hours and days and days and months and years to figure out, even though there's a lot of people to judge, God's a big God, right? Amen. But still, I think it's, it's very symbolic of the fact that he has to determine before he comes who he's taking with him. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, of course it does. And not just for, for him to be convinced, but others as well. Matthew 16, 27, for the son of man will come in the glory of his father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Same idea, this time out of the mouth of Jesus, even though revelation, you know, it's uh, through prophecy and so on. I think we can trust that too. But here we see the same idea. He will reward each according to his works, decisions they've made. Back to Revelation 20, verse 12, and I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. So throughout Revelation, we have this idea of judgment, of books, of records, okay? And uh, so we're going to look a little bit more about that. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. You know, this whole idea, too, about the judgment, we oftentimes think, that we are the ones being judged. But if you recall, back when we talked about in the Garden of Eden, there was uh, this back and forth between Lucifer, Satan, and Jesus. And I think it was directly against Jesus because Jesus is the one that came and died. I think it was directly against God. God the Father would have died or the Holy Spirit. But no, it was Jesus. Um, Where was I going with that? Dead according to the works by the things which were written in the books. Okay, So really, the judgment is not about us. I think ultimately, the judgment's about him. This whole idea, is God fair? Is he just? Is he true? Can I trust him in every single case? Because if he gets it right in every case, except for Dan's case, then someone's going to say, flag on the play, no fair, foul, you know, not right, you're not fair, you're not just, you're not true. Well, I wasn't everybody. Well, you weren't with, you know what I'm saying? 
And so ultimately, <clears throat> don't worry, Dan, you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. <laughs> ultimately, God's the one that's on trial, isn't he? God's the one that the devil's really trying to attack and to accuse and so on and so forth. Uh, and here we have this back and forth and Lucifer trying to convince other angels and so on. That's what that picture is alluding to and the books and all the rest. God reveals in the judgment that he has done everything he can to save. Do you believe that? Yeah. Everything to the uttermost to seek and to save that which are lost. So he's not trying to keep people out. He's wanting people to come in, right? Sometimes we have a picture of God that he's like this. Oh, these mics. He's like this, and he's kind of tapping his toe, and you know. So you want to go to heaven, huh? It's not the picture of God we have. The picture of God we should have is like this, right? Nails in his hands. I'm not going to send somebody. I'm going to go myself so I can demonstrate myself that I'm doing everything within my power and still maintain their freedom of choice, but everything in my power to draw them to me. And I, I honestly think that's a lot of what's in these books, is how Jesus is trying to draw, how he's trying to woo, how he's given opportunities. I heard a story one time where, uh, it's just a parable, I suppose, but uh, <clears throat> there was a flood situation, I mean, a, a major flood situation where you see boats going around to, to save people, you know what I'm saying? And so, <clears throat> well, I, back up, back up, I'm telling the story wrong. So first, there was the, the weather forecaster that said, you know, there's a flood coming, you need to evacuate. Uh, they said that before. Who cares? Well, then it started to rain really hard. Then there started to be some, some water coming down the driveway. And then, <clears throat> or down the road, all that. Then a cop comes through with a big uh, microphone. He's, you know, this isn't the person that's selling popsicles in the summertime. This is somebody saying, it's time to evacuate. Everybody needs to get out. But that worked pretty well, didn't it? <laughs> and they're going up and down the streets. Ah, forget about it. What do they know? You, get, you, you understand where I'm going with this, right? Then eventually the, the guy comes by in a boat. And they're, they're starting to you know, get up on the upstairs and thinking about, well, maybe if I crawl out this window, you know, sir, it's time to go. You got to evacuate. I'm not going anywhere. <clears throat> and all this time, see, I'm not telling this story right. I wasn't planning on sharing it. All this time, this person is praying, Lord, you're big enough, you're powerful enough, you're strong enough to deliver me from this flood. Don't let my street flood. And he keeps praying, keeps praying. He says, no, my Lord will save me every time. You know, time to evacuate. No, my Lord will save me. The boat comes by. No, the Lord will save me. Then eventually he's on the roof and the helicopter comes over, you know, and there's a spotlight and he's there with Sparky on the roof and the dog is barking, save us, save us. Sir, you need to evacuate. Grab onto the ladder. What does he say? Nope, my Lord will save me. And as the parable goes, the time comes when he gets to see Jesus face to face. And he says, Lord, where were you? I prayed the whole time and you didn't, you, I mean, the flood still came and it swept me away and I drowned. And you know how I don't like to drown. <laughs> you know, I don't like to die. And, and in this parable, Jesus says, I sent the weather forecaster, I sent the police officer, I sent the boat, I sent the helicopter, and you refused them all. I think Jesus is doing everything that he can to draw us and woo us. 
and he wants us to be saved. So God reveals in the judgment he has done everything he can to save us, and Satan has done everything he can to destroy us. We see these polar opposites. So where does this judgment take place? Well, if we look in the book of Daniel, we see Daniel has a vision. And it's a pretty overwhelming vision, and he's trying to figure it out and all the rest, um, and eventually it's given to him. But let's start here in Daniel chapter 7, verse 9 and 10. It says, I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. And the thousand thousands ministered to him, 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. And the court was seated and the books were opened. Similar language, isn't it? This idea of a judgment. And here you have maybe an artist's depiction of what this may look like. As all these angels are uh, with him and, and so forth. And here's a person down here and they're pointing to the book and so on. But I like this picture here. Here Christ is interceding on behalf of this person that's guilty. And here you have the shadow of Christ and the cross. Isn't that kind of neat? Somebody came up with that and decided to draw that. So when does this judgment take place? Um, And the where, I think, is answered that is taking place in heaven. When does this judgment take place? Uh, well, let's look at that a little bit here. It says, Daniel eight fourteen. it says, For 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. How many days? 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Now, <clears throat> there was a period of time where a lot of people misinterpreted this text. I'm talking about people all over North America people in Europe, Bible scholars all over, and the prophecy was very sure. And that's what we're going to look at tonight is the the prophecy and the dates. And people largely came to the same conclusions. I mean, we're talking thousands of people, not just one or two. The thing that they got wrong was, what does this mean right here? The sanctuary shall be cleansed. What does that mean? Some took it to mean, well, that means that the earth is going to be cleansed by fire. That's when Jesus comes again. So that's the second coming. And so some gravitated to that interpretation. There were some other interpretations along the way. It wasn't until after the fact, and I'm kind of going on a a tangent here, but it wasn't until after the fact that they looked back and realized there was an earthly sanctuary, yes, but God gave the plans to that earthly sanctuary to Moses, and he saw, and it was a pattern after a heavenly sanctuary. So you have a model on earth that's going through the motions, going through the process for people to learn the plan of salvation, but ultimately this sanctuary in the Old Testament is being played out, not just with lambs and goats and all those things, but up in heaven with a true, pure sacrifice, Jesus Christ. Behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. So for 2,300 days, and the sanctuary shall be cleansed. What did the cleansing of the sanctuary mean? So we go to the sanctuary, Exodus 25, verse 8. Let them make me a sanctuary that I might dwell among them. All the way through, God just simply wants to dwell with his people. He wants to restore his people. And so in the Old Testament, sacrifice is pointed forward to Jesus' sacrifice. Here you have the altar here, and the lamb would be sacrificed on this altar, all symbolic of Christ's sacrifice later. 
And then you have the labor and all these things are, are symbolic of various things. But when the lamb, we talked about this some on Sabbath, when the lamb was sacrificed, some blood was taken in and it was sprinkled on this curtain right here, separating the holy place from the mo- most holy place. You had daily sacrifices where I'm transferring my sin to a lamb, placing my hands on the head, asking for forgiveness for my specific sin, slitting the lamb's throat, and then the lamb burns and so on. But some of the blood gets transferred to the sanctuary symbolic that my sin, your sin, your sin, everybody's sin, all year long is being transferred where? To the sanctuary. That would eventually probably be kind of a a stinky place, I suppose. I don't know. Some flies? I don't know. But then there was a daily sacrifice, but then there was a yearly sacrifice. And the yearly sacrifice was a big deal. So let's suppose that you've sinned you have to put your hand on the, the head of the lamb. You confess your sin. The sinner's guilt was symbolically transferred to the perfect lamb. The perfect lamb was slain and his blood caught in the basin. The lamb's body was put on the altar, signifying Christ's death on the cross. And then the high priest would administer that blood, right? Okay? So some people say, oh, it was all done at the cross. Well, it was all done at the cross in a, in a very significant sense. Jesus paid the ultimate sacrifice for us. The big battle that was been waging between uh, you know, Lucifer and the devil and between Jesus Christ was finished at the cross, but now he's administering that blood on your behalf and my behalf. That's a good thing. That's the antivenom actually being applied on my behalf. So that's a good thing, right? So you have the daily and the yearly sacrifice. And here you have the resurrection of, of Christ and, and going home and, and all those types of things. Jesus offers the merits of his blood in heaven on our behalf. And it's happening even now because we're part of that, in part of that investigative judgment phase. How do you know that? Good question. We're going to have to go through this prophecy to figure all that out. The day of atonement or day of judgment or the cleansing of the sanctuary. Some people break this word up. The day of at one meant. That was the day that sin was purified from the camp. I mean, it'd be like taking the garbage out of your house and putting it down the hill in the ravine, and it just builds up all year long. At some point, you want to purge it, right? Now, if Jesus didn't want to just purge sin forever and always, he would have just died on the cross, and that would have been it. He would have set up a different system. But he wants to not only provide a way of escape from sin, but he wants to purge the planet from sin. Don't you want that too? And so all this that's building up is soon going to be purged. And everything is going to be at one meant or at one again. I mean, everything will be as it needs to be. And so during that Day of Atonement, it was a big fanfare for the children of Israel. And and everyone was aware of it. And everyone was was in fasting. And everyone was praying. And everyone was seeking after God and, and making sure they didn't have any unconfessed sins, right? Because the last thing you want to do is sin right before it's all done away with, right? And you don't have time to bring your lamb and all the rest. So you're really, you're really on your knees. It's a special time. It's a consecrated time, right? And so people here are, are praying. They're seeking after God. They want to make sure all of their sins are, they've asked for forgiveness, right? You don't want to have a, a sin left someplace on the books that you forgot to, to ask for. Now, that doesn't mean, I don't believe anyway, it doesn't mean that we have to painstakingly go through every little detail. I mean, how did David pray in Psalm? He said, Lord, search my heart and if there's any wickedness in me, right? 
help me to know it so I can confess it. And I think that's a fair prayer to pray. I think in a general sense, but there's times we need to pray in a very specific sense because God has convicted or the Holy Spirit has convicted of us, convicted us of a certain thing that we really need to make right. And that's not something we just want to just pass over, you know. Oh, I gunned everybody down at the mall today. Lord, forgive me for my sins. Amen. I crawl into bed. It needs to be a little more than that, right? Anyway, the cleansing of the sanctuary in the Old Testament was a symbol, a symbol of the final work of judgment prior to Christ's second coming. Prior to Christ's second coming. Now, I believe Jesus is coming soon. So this is going to happen prior, before, pre-advent. When is it going to start? Is it taking place now? That's what we're looking at. So let's go back to this idea. What is the meaning of the 2300 days? Now, in Daniel chapter 8, verse 16 and 17, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. If you actually go back and read this chapter, Daniel is confessing his sin. Now, Daniel is one of the two, I think, in Scripture that we never have anything written about him that we know he did wrong. Now, we can't say that about King David. We can't say that about most all the disciples. We can't say that about most everybody else. But Daniel's one we never have any wrong recorded in Scripture. I'm not saying he was perfect, but it's not recorded. But we have Daniel pouring out his heart to God, asking for forgiveness personally and corporately as a body of people and pleading with the Lord. And in the middle of that, he's interrupted and God sends his angel Gabriel and he says, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, son of man, that the vision refers to what time? The time of the end. So the vision is going to be at the end of time. It's going to be <clears throat> speaking in regards to the heavenly sanctuary. And thirdly, it's going to be symbolic time period. If we just take 2,300 days from the time of Daniel, that comes out to about, I don't know, six years or something. Figure it out and let me know. There's not much significance that takes place in that next six years. Now, sometimes we'll point uh, to this thing, this verse here, Ezekiel 4, 6. I have laid on you a day for each year. And there's another place, I think it's in the book of Numbers, that says something similar. And we can point to that and we can say when we're talking about Bible prophecy... Not talking about days of creation, not talking about uh, this person journeyed three days to this village and all the rest. We can't just assign this willy-nilly, but when we have uh, beasts and symbols and signs, we can simply ask ourselves, would this be a place we could apply this day for a year principle? And honestly, the biggest proof that we can do that is to me that it works. We can point to these texts, like I just had up there, Ezekiel, and that's, that's good. That gives us kind of a foundation we can do that. But the real proof to me is that it works. That's pretty powerful. So let's, let's continue on. So is this literal or symbolic? That's the question to ask. When Jesus is riding on his white horse, victorious, is that literal or is that symbolic? Okay. The 2300 days, is that literal or symbolic? Well, let's look. If we were to say it is literal or, well, 2300 symbolic days or literal days, if we were going to say it's literal, then we have like six or so years out from Daniel, and we have to plug all these things into that time period. And people I'm, have tried that, and they don't come up with much. But if we say it's symbolic of a day for a year principle, then we have 2,300 years. And along the line, we're going to see in this passage here, and this can be confusing. I hope you're not confused. If you are confused, I apologize. But even if you are a little bit confused, that's okay. There's no test you're not going to get up to the pearly gates and no one's going to ask you to recite this for memory, okay? And you have more time to study it out. 
But we're going to try and do a quick overview if we couldn't. We're going to pinpoint the baptism. We're going to pinpoint the crucifixion. We're going to pinpoint the gospel going to the Gentiles. And we're going to pinpoint the judgment hour and when that began. And all of that is in this 2300 day slash 2300 year prophecy. Okay? Now, I just took a picture of this with my iPhone. If you look in your Andrew Study Bible, it's the blue one that's there in front of you. You might have one at home. Uh, You may want to look there. It's right here at the top, page 1127. This is another depiction of this prophecy. And I think this one honestly makes a lot of sense. But we have the 2300 days in total. And then we have these 70 weeks. 70 weeks, if we turn it into years, would be 490 years. And so we have that there. Then we have talk of 7 and 62 weeks, which would add that up to 69 or 483 years, and then there's one week left to complete this section here, and then we have all these dates along the way. We're going to talk about each of those, but maybe that gives you a little bit of a framework with which to hang things on, and hopefully that's helpful, and that's something you can go back and study on your own as well. But Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, it says, 70 weeks are determined. That word for determined means to cut off, to amputate, to separate. Now, to amputate something doesn't mean it was independent to begin with, right? I mean, if there's an extra arm over there and the doctor amputates it, I mean, it just doesn't make sense. It has to be part of me, right? And then they take it off. I mean, it sends chills in my body to think about in the Civil War, a good doctor could amputate or saw a leg in 30 seconds while everybody holds him down. Why did I share that? I don't know. Okay. We live in a much better time, don't we? So 70 weeks are determined or cut off for your people and for your holy city. So if we have 2,300 days and if we're going to amputate or cut off, that's not a separate or, you know, we can't just throw that out over here, over there. It's part of the 2,300 days and it's on the front part, okay? And the 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. Who was Daniel's people? The Jewish race or the Israelites. And so for 70 weeks, there was going to be a period Uh, determined for your people and for your holy city. Daniel's city was Jerusalem. Daniel's people was the Jews. And so 70 weeks are determined or cut off for your people and for your holy city. The first 70 weeks apply to the Jewish nation. That's it. Don't get overly confused about that. It's there in your Andrew study Bibles. You have 2,300 days, and we're going to cut off the first 70 weeks of that, which is really how many years? Let's do some math. 70 weeks times seven days per week. 490 prophetic days or 490 years. So we have 2,300 years, and then we're going to cut off 490 years, right? And those are going to be for God's people. Are you confused yet? Using this day for a year principle. So here's how they represent it here. And then the 70 weeks we have right here. And there's even some explanation down here in your Bible. It was just too small. I didn't include it. This is just to remind me that the shoe fits, wear it. Have you ever heard that expression? If the day for year principle fits, that's how we'll know largely that it works, right? So let's keep going. We have the 490 years, and when does this prophecy start? Now, that would be a a nice thing to have on our chart, wouldn't it? Because we're going to start 2300 days today. Was it back in Daniel's day or some other time? Let's look. Another interesting point is that in prophecy, every time prophecy always begins in the time of the prophet that he gives it to. Does that make sense? 
All right, so Daniel 9.25, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, remember he was taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar, right? And so he's looking for this to happen, and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So this verse is helpful in a couple ways. One, it tells us the starting point, the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. But then it also adds more numbers. Oh, now we're going to get confused. Well, let's start with this first part. The, degree, the decree to rebuild Jerusalem was given in 457 B.C. We can find that. We can know that. Don't believe me? Ask Google. It can find that. It knows that. Right? By Artaxerxes, king of Persia. So that gives us a starting point now of 457 B.C. Now it starts to get a little exciting. Because now we can predict, if you will, even though it's in the past, but in Daniel's mind, he can start thinking, okay, what does this really mean? So we have the 490 years for his people. So we have part one for the Jews, part two for the Gentiles, this remaining period. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, 457 B.C. Okay, let's keep going here. Until Messiah the Prince, there shall be 70 weeks and 62 weeks. Now, who's Messiah the Prince? Jesus, right? And so we know that Jesus is going to begin his ministry at the end of the period that they told us of seven weeks and 62 weeks, right? And so if we have seven weeks and 62 weeks, that equals 69 weeks. See, you really have to chart all this out or it can be very confusing. But about the time that this comes to an expiration, which we'll see is 1844, thousands of people around the world were coming up with this. It wasn't just a few here and there. So Messiah means the anointed one. And when was Jesus anointed? At his baptism. Remember the dove that came down. This is my beloved son who I'm well pleased. That's when his ministry began. Up until then, we have almost, almost no record of what Jesus was doing, right? I mean, we know he taught the temple and, and a few little pieces along the way, but we virtually have the first 29 years of his life, we have almost nothing. Because why? His time had not yet come. Did Jesus understand this prophecy? I believe he did. So we have Messiah means the anointed one. So let's continue on. So we have the starting point, 457. Then we have the 69 weeks. And then we have his baptism. Does that come out right if we do the math? It really does. If you study that, it comes out exactly right. Perfectly right. So you have 70 weeks. You have 69 and 7 days per week. You have 483 prophetic days, right? Day for a year principle. <clears throat> See, I get confused in some of this stuff. But AD 27 and some of these charts, I think, are, are not the best. That's why I keep referring back to this one. You have the 2300 days. You have the time determined for God's people. You have the 483 years from the starting point, And it takes you exactly to 27 AD. Now, if you're going to go home and you're going to figure this up on your own to check me out, which I encourage you to do, by the way, you have to keep in mind because you might be one year off because your calculator, it goes from all these negative numbers and then you have zero and then it goes the other way. When you look at history, when you go from before Christ to after, it just goes from one to one, which means with your calculator, you add one when going from BC to AD. Does that make sense? So I just throw that out there for when you double check. And so this time comes out exactly, Jesus says it's his time. It's interesting to me as well, as you go through the Gospels, I'm sure many of you have read the Gospels many, many times, 
different ones are trying to, to kill Jesus and do other things. I think Jesus took hope in the fact that it wasn't yet his time. Because we're going to see in a minute, it also predicts his death. Now, does that give you hope or does it not give you hope? I don't know. Maybe a little bit of both. You know your time is short because you only have three and a half years of ministry, as this is going to tell us here in a little bit. So you know it's not going to be tomorrow, but at the same time, you also know it's going to be in another year or whatever it is. But I think Jesus knew all about all this. So Luke 3.21 says, When all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. And so we have that date that we can go back to. We can check it out, and it comes out exactly to A.D. 27, according to this prophecy. Is that pretty cool? I think it's pretty cool. And then it says, And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off. Remember, it had seven listed first, and then it talked about the 62 bringing you to the 69, but after the 62 portion, the Messiah would be cut off. Okay. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. So here we have our graph again. I probably should have taken all these out and just gone with the Andrew Study Bible one, but you have 483, and then you have one final week, and the, the 69 and the one makes for the 70, the time determined for the Jewish race, right? And we're going to now look at this one week and it's going to give us some details about what's going to happen in that one prophetic week, okay? Those seven years, okay? Starting with the baptism of Christ. So then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. A week is seven days. When's the middle of the week? Three and a half days. If you're being technical, divide seven by two, three and a half. How long was Jesus' ministry? Three and a half years, Exactly. So we have this again, we've pinpointed the baptism, the crucifixion, three and a half years later in AD 31. And then there's another verse here. This is another way of depicting it. Here's that last week and it's divided. There's three and a half years in between here, three and a half years in between here. Jesus' baptism was in the fall. Jesus' crucifixion was in the spring. That's the half. And then we have this gospel to the Gentiles. This is the next piece we're looking for. Daniel 9 is about Jesus Christ, our Messiah, by the way, and all these different things. He was anointed to minister, to show us an example. He died for our sins. He had a covenant with his people, but then when they didn't abide by that, when they didn't obey, it went then to the Gentiles. That's you and me. I don't think many of us here are Jews, right? We're part of spiritual Israel today, and then eventually about the judgment. So it's all about Jesus. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Christ was crucified exactly on time. And Jesus knew. He didn't guess. He didn't think, oh, I wonder. In fact, it was during Passover, wasn't it? It didn't just accidentally happen. But instead of a Passover lamb, Passover was part of the Day of Atonement and all that. But then it was Jesus. This time it wasn't lamb, it was Jesus, right? Galatians 4, 4, but when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son. God doesn't guess. He knows when the fullness of time has come and he comes right on time. The time is fulfilled, it says in Mark 1, 15. And if you start looking for these things, you start finding them all throughout the gospels and throughout scripture. It's not my time. It's not my time. Romans 5, 6, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly right on time. And when Jesus died, the curtain in between the holy place and the most holy place, 
that they sprinkled the blood all year long was ripped. How was it? Diagonal, bottom up, top to bottom. Didn't want there to be any mistake that somebody had snuck in there and, well, if I could just get it started. That's a good question. How high was it? What, 10, 12 feet? It was pretty high. Top to bottom, ripped. No longer are we going to have to go through this system. The ultimate sacrifice has come and died right on time. So Christ was baptized on time. Christ was crucified on time. Here we have this chart. We have the beginning. We have the 483 years. We have three and a half and three and a half, the dates that go across the top. Okay, what happened in A.D. 34? Are we just assigning something? You know, are we going and looking and go, you know, let's go fish. What can we find in A.D. 34? No. Something very significant happened in A.D. 34. In A.D. 34, Stephen gave... Uh, he testified really about who Jesus was as the Messiah, spoken of in the Old Testament, that Jesus was a fulfillment of that. And he gave that to uh, the Jewish leaders, and they didn't, they didn't like that idea. In fact, they hated that idea. They never accepted Jesus as the Messiah all along. They hated Jesus. That's why they killed Jesus and wanted him killed. And so rather than accepting that, what did they do to Stephen? The messenger. They stoned him. That's a significant point in time because that period, remember that first 490 that was amputated, that was cut off, right then, things change, right at 34 AD. And in the midst of this, this is incredible to me, while they are picking up stones, you know they have stones, they're about ready to hurl them and throw them, and in the midst of this, Stephen is praying, and what's his prayer? Same as as Christ's prayer, God forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Forgive them, they know not what they do. To just get practical for a second, that's a great prayer for you and I to pray, isn't it? Pretty incredible to me. So we have the gospel then to the Gentiles, going to the Gentiles. All these things right on time. These are markers along the way. Right on time, right on time, right on time, right on time. And then we catapult way off into the future. Daniel 9, 24, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. And we have that, part one. And then we got here to AD 34, which was broken down. But then there's part two, and we have 1,810 years left. That takes us way over here. And what's the year over there? 1844. What happened in 1844? Some people say a whole bunch of nothing. The whole thing is a fraud. I don't think so. If God shows that he's right on time throughout this prophecy over and over and over and over and that he doesn't guess... And then he, it shoots off here to 1844, I believe something happened. So we have here the sanctuary cleansing in the fall of AD 1844, or just 1844. For 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Did Jesus come in 1844? Good thing, or we missed it. But the cleansing of the sanctuary, the day of atonement, the beginning of the investigative judgment, investigative, seeing who he will reward with what when he comes who he's going to take back home with him when he comes. And in the Old Testament sanctuary, that was a solemn time, right? Of fasting and of prayer, asking for forgiveness. I believe we entered into that time. Since 1844, we have been living in God's judgment hour. Our John the Revelator in his vision, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. It has come as of 1844. The hour of his judgment has come. It's now. God is interceding on our behalf with his own blood in the heavenly sanctuary now. 
And I think that's a good thing. I don't want to be my own sacrifice, do you? Not at all. One example that I like to use of this, well, what does this all mean? What's the big deal? Who cares? Well, to me, it shows we're just that much closer to when Jesus is going to come. In fact, there's no time prophecy in Scripture that is yet to happen in terms of specific days and times. It's not there. We know of things that will still continue to happen up until Jesus comes, but it's not a punctiliar event. All that is done away with. And we know the final scenes will be rapid ones. And if anybody plays soccer, or if you ever watch soccer, sometimes there's delays in the game. Maybe the microphone goes out and you have to fiddle with that or whatever it is. And people are running off of the field. Somebody gets hurt and the paramedics had to come out, whatever it is. So there's delays in the game and the referee is able, if there is a tie game at the end, as the, the clock expires, he's able to say, we're going we're gonna, to, let's not go into extra innings, but we're going to add some time on the clock. We're going to add some time on the clock. We're going to have a shootout. And that referee can decide at any point that he wants to based on how much delay he thought there was in the game, how long he'll let them play. So it's not like other sports where they just put up, you know, five minutes on the clock and then eh, 10 minutes, whatever. He decides, the, the, I was going to say the judge, the referee decides. And at any point, I mean, they're just all out at this point. They're running, they're scrambling, they're doing everything they can. It's tie game, and they want to get that last final goal before the referee says, time, and puts his hand up. That's virtually where we are in Earth's history. At any point in this game, God can just say, time. Time's up. Blow the whistle. Says, that's the game. And that's where we are. Folks, we don't have to be afraid of the judgment because we've been pardoned. Christ has paid the penalty for your sin and for my sin. And he longs to cover us. And so, yes, while we might be in that time of investigative judgment, if Jesus is on our side, we have nothing to fear. Now, if he's not, then I suppose we do. But as long as we are with Jesus, as long as we're hanging on to his hand, he will see us through. He does everything on time. He knows what he's doing. He's making every appeal to draw you to him. And I believe our time is short. At some point very soon, the ref is going to say, time. It is finished. I don't want to be left on the fence on that day. I want to make my decision today. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have done everything in your power to redeem us. You've paid every price that can be paid. And even now, you're, you're ministering your blood on our behalf in the heavenly sanctuary for us. You're applying that antidote, if you will, for us. And Lord, we don't have to worry about the future. We don't have to worry about judgment. We don't have to worry about so much because you have died for us. We are secure in Christ. We can't be secure in the world. We can't be secure in our finances or bank accounts. We can't be secure in our jobs. We can't even be fully secure in our families. But we can be fully secure in Jesus Christ, who gave his all for us. Thank you for that. And may we live like we're living in the final moments, because this prophecy says that we are. In your name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. 
If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.